Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Hoffman, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back with a full crew and another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Sox. As the only consistent person on this podcast, I would like to say welcome back to Jordan Lazowski. Nick, you've been here as well, even though uh, you did take an episode off. But gentlemen, how are we doing? Good to be back. I wish the team were better, but uh, I didn't miss much on that side of things. But, you know, you guys covered a good two episodes. A lot happened while I was gone. Maybe I need to go out uh, a lot more. and uh, Maybe more things will happen. But good to be back. Good to be with you guys. Um, it's been a busy time, but let's sit down. Let's talk some baseball. Yeah, I was going to say, or maybe you need to go out a lot less because a lot has happened, but it hasn't all been good <laughs> and it's been very chaotic. And it's fun. It's good for us that we get to talk about stuff that isn't, you know, this pretty terrible baseball team. But at the same time, it's kind of overwhelming. And I'm I'm hoping, maybe not hoping because, you know, now they have to hire a front office and whatnot, but it would be nice if we could just have a week or two go by where there are no scandals or no massive rumors or leaks. I have a hard time believing that'll happen. Nick, are you saying you missed me? Um, no comment. <laughs> I know Duke missed me, but this is quite the aura we have already. No, genuinely, <laughs> I was so glad to hear that Jordan was taking a vacation. Nobody, nobody works harder. Genuinely, uh, so I really hope that you got oh, all the pictures sweet. you wanted with Mickey, Minnie Goofy, <laughs> Daffy Duck, Donald Duck, which you know wherever wherever you actually were. But um, yeah, it's great to have the full crew back. Obviously, this team's not great, and we literally just had a weekend series of basically the battle of the two worst teams in baseball, um, and two fan bases who come together in wanting their their team to be sold. So yeah, no, it's it's really fun having the tomato constantly on our face and just never going away. Genuinely, it's the best. But anyway, uh, we've quite a bit to cover in this episode. Before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple and Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website at SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th. So, you know, like like we were kind of alluding to, or, you know, Nick kind of alluded to, it has been a crazy week in the Chicago Chicago White Sox baseball. I mean, well, off the field, you know, what, what more can you really say uh, with the Jerry Reinsdorf situation and really kind of the, the whole hammer that was dropped? You know, me and Nick kind of covered that on a uh, – on a shorter episode to just kind of get our quick response to that. But we are looking for a head of baseball operations and a new general manager. And there have been rumors aplenty, you know, Bob Nightingale is somebody who is pretty, pretty gung ho that, uh, you know, Dayton Moore and Chris Getz are going to be the guys. Um, There have been some other names that have been floated around. There was even a a Mike Rizzo leverage work that he did with us. as exciting as it was for 24 hours, I think that Mike Rizzo was a legitimate possibility. Obviously, here we are. Um, but Jordan, I'll let you, I'll let the man who's back uh, kind of kick off this discussion. What are your thoughts on Dayton Moore and Chris Getz potentially being the guys? And do you think there is legitimacy that they have already kind of been picked? Uh, so when the news dropped that Han and Williams were out, I was on my vacation, which was on a golf trip. And I was excited for about two minutes. And then I'm like, wait a minute. That means Jerry Reinsdorf has to make the hiring call. And we all know what happened 
last time that happened. I tweeted something like that a couple hours later. People were like, oh, let us have fun. Let us be excited. And then, like, what was it? 12, 14 hours later, it comes out about gets and more. Um, so it's like, yeah, this is this is almost exactly what you would expect. Um, I do think there's legitimacy to it because you, you look at it as a whole. We know Reinsdorf likes gets. Uh, the rumor has been Larusa and Dayton Moore are close. I, I think that's you you can easily track that through their history in the game. Um, over time, we know Larusa is some sort of consultant, not a consultant, contracted. I don't know what he is, but he's around. Um, and that leaves Grafal as a third part of this that I think is an important part because. You know, let's just say it is gets and more. And I think once Nightingale reports it, I think we would be foolish to ignore it considering what happened with the LaRusa hiring last time we went through this. It would be foolish to ignore him being as confident as he is. He might be wrong, but it would be foolish to ignore it. Um, now you have the team's director of player development that has not developed players very well recently. You have somebody who put together a lightning in the bottle team in Kansas City, which is just like the two guys you just fired. And they're going to be the ones who likely keep Rafal around because they all have a Kansas City connection. So now you're in a situation where heading into next year, what changes? You have um, the guy evaluating the team in terms of talent is the director of player development. So he's going to favor those guys. And if you seem to think coaching staff was the issue, well they're all going to be back because Grafal is going to likely stick up for his guys. Everyone in the front office is not going to stick up for Grafal. So you end up being in a situation where nothing changes, even though it feels like things have changed. Um, so that's a long way of saying, yeah, I, I think it's incredibly legitimate just simply because of what we've heard about um, Chris Getz and how he is liked in what's remaining of the White Sox front office. I, I think it's very much worth taking seriously. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't lead me to think there are going to be a lot of changes next year. Whether or not we, we can discuss Getz's qualifications, but in whether you decide he's qualified or not, him being here next year kind of feels like much would not change. And that kind of feels like the bigger issue of all of it. Yeah, I totally agree that it is legitimate because it's Bob Nightingale. And like Jordan said, you don't want to redo the same mistake of ignoring the LaRusso rumors from, you know, three years ago and then they ended up being true. And on our last episode, the sort of shorter one that Duke and I did when this news first came out, the, the news of the firing, I should say, first came out, uh, the top of Chris Getz came up and it was, you know, 30 minutes after it happened. And I was like, Getz, like, I don't, I said something along the lines of, I don't want the White Sox to hire him, but I don't think it would be the worst thing in the world. Like, we don't really know that much about him, blah, blah, blah. And then I thought about that, you know, the day after. And I was like, actually, I take that back. And it's not that it would be the worst thing ever. Obviously, there's always something worse. But it's more so that it's just bringing more uncertainty, I feel like, to a organization that really needs stability. And you could argue it's stability because he's already in the organization. But when the organization is unstable as it is, I don't I don't think that's really, you know, something that gets its favor. I also had forgotten, like I knew about like Project Birmingham and whatnot, but I'd forgotten that he was the he was in his current position when the Omar Vizquel sexual abuse situation happened, and his comments on it were, in my opinion, very um, tone deaf. Is probably the nicest way of putting it. Uh, so I'm not a fan of that 
And I don't think that that's something that should be ignored when we talk about him. But the second thing that happened in addition to me kind of reconsidering that initial stance is that Bob Nightingale went on the radio the next day and said that Getz would be the top dog and Dayton Moore would be like the second in command. And that's just really weird to me because Dayton Moore, while I don't think he's that great, he at least has been, you know, in this position before. You think that he'd be the more veteran guy coming in with Getz being the GM or whatever the lower position ended up being. And more the thing with him is he was with the Royals for about 16 years and they were only good for two of them. Like, yes, they won a World Series, but it's basically the same exact thing as the White Sox from, you know, Han and Williams' tenure. Like, they had a couple good years out of, like, 15 to 20. And I don't really think that is worth bringing you into an organization. I know, I know I'm not saying anything like controversial. I know we are probably all anti-Dayton more, but it's just weird to me, the whole Royals obsession continuing. Like, I kind of understood it when Grifol got hired, but now that he's kind of less certain in the future because the guy who hired him is now gone doubling down on it just feels wrong so i think it's legitimate and i'm kind of just gonna assume it happens until it doesn't hopefully i'm wrong but overall i just don't really understand it and i and i wanted to amend you know my initial comments on gets because the more i think about it the less i would be happy with that well the more you think about it too it's like it it like it, it doesn't logically make sense to put get above more. Like at best, you're putting someone in charge who hasn't done this before and doesn't really have a strong enough resume to make you feel good about doing it. At worst, you create the same sort of power imbalance that, according to rumors, was already existing in the White Sox front office between Williams and Han. You just recreated the same problem again. So it's like, no matter how you kind of spin this, it comes out looking like, you know, you can make a path where Chris Getz eventually is ahead of baseball operations. If you look at people around the league who we would be consider quote unquote qualified to have this position right now, a lot of them have been directors of player development. The problem is there's usually a span in the middle where they're like an executive VP. Um, they're maybe even a general manager for a little bit. Um, but there's usually another step before, Hey, we're putting you in charge of everything. Like, I feel like that's still the part that I would like to see more, um, throughout all of this in, in terms of just evaluating Chris Getz as a person too. It's like, yeah, it just doesn't, it, it feels like it would be a rushed sort of process and he might be good, but I, I don't think you can build as strong of a resume for him as you could for others. Yeah. Especially others who are going to be chomping at the bit with other organizations to go out and get that, you know, president of baseball operations job, or even that for their first GM job. So it really doesn't make a lot of sense on a lot of fronts. And, you know, Nick, like you said, me and you kind of covered, covered this pretty well on that episode, but it would just, it would, Chris Getz could genuinely be one of the most like qualified people for this job. It would still sting because it just feels like it's the same boys club nonsense that we've just been getting into with every Jerry Reinsdorf front office. You know, it was this way with the Bulls. You know, it's been this way with the White Sox for a long time now, even before then. Like it's it's been this type of, you know, these are my boys. These are my guys that we need to have in here, you know, because I, you know, I, I 
they're just people who I trust directly with, you know, other stuff like Jerry Reinsdorf has never really hit the point where it's like, I can be friends with people that don't directly work under me. I don't think he's ever really connected that dot. Um, and I think, uh, I, I think that's why we were in this hodgepodge as long as we were, you know, I, I wouldn't mind seeing what a guy like Chris gets could do because, you know, I think he is a knowledgeable guy when I've heard him talk, but I don't want this because we so desperately need a culture change. And by dis- deciding to keep culture from, from in-house and, you know, f- to clean up the culture that we already had with the guys we just got rid of, it doesn't really do anything at all. You know, Rick Hahn, you know, you can say a lot about Rick Hahn and the decisions that he made. There have been worse GMs out there, genuinely. They, you know, and yeah, he 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 missed. He missed on some big signings and some big signings and some crucial moments of where this team was being built. But you know what? The reason why I was so happy that he was gone and the reason that Ken, I was so happy when Kenny Williams was gone was because the culture was finally feeling like it was going to change. And bringing in guys who are already familiar with this team you know, who have been with this culture, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything. It it genuinely doesn't like the culture needs to change. The idea needs to change. We need fresh minds in the organization. And this does not fix that. That's, that's the thing that bothers me the most about it. And the only thing I'll push back on there a bit, if if I felt he was qualified, I might be more okay with it. Like, I, I think when we look at when Rakan was promoted, I think it was fairly easy to make an argument that this person was qualified to be a general manager. Whether or not they ended up, be, whether or not Han ended up being up good at his job is one thing, but this is someone who was almost poached multiple times by other organizations and was being written about as, hey, this is one of the up and coming GMs in baseball. A lot of times when those articles are written, those guys end up becoming GMs. Um, the difference is with Chris Getz, it's like, I don't feel the qualifications are there on top of everything you said after that, though, Duke. Like, you need a culture shift and everything. I think the conversation would be so much different. It would be far more focused on what you're saying in terms of a culture shift if the conversation didn't have to be, well, is he even qualified for this? He might be qualified one day, but is he qualified right now? There's Like, you would have to be having a killer, killer job down there in player development, and you're not. So yeah, are you qualified that it's like the conversation would be so much different if I think we could all get to the page that he was, then the question becomes like you were saying, Duke, you know, this team needs a culture shift so bad that it might not even be worth promoting someone internally, even if they were um, qualified for the job. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the whole point I was trying to make. Like, I don't want to sit here and pretend like, I think Chris Getz is somebody who deserves this job because I, you know, I don't think he's there. I don't, I'm not necessarily offended by the job that he does currently, but he's not somebody that I would look at as like, man, this guy's going to get snatched to another organization if we don't, if we don't, you know, upgrade him. And you know what? I think whoever we, whoever we hire, if it's not Chris Getz in either of these roles, I think they should be at the discretion to decide if he's going to continue to stay with the organization or not. You know what I mean? Let some, what Jerry has to do is really take a step back, get a committee to, you know, discuss with who who they think he should hire, kind of similar to what, what the Bears did, you know, because George McCaskey stood on a podium with a big old Bears logo in front of it and admitted that he's not a fo- like a football guy. He's a football fan. He's not a football guy in the sense of he knows who to bring in. So they, they brought in a committee of former GMs, top flight GMs to all kind of have a discussion and figure out who they wanted to bring in. And, you know, it's, it's just free. It's advice. You know what I mean? 
you don't have to listen to it, but it's nice to get advice from people who have been there and people who have done it. And I think that's what Jerry would be best off doing. Um, you know, I, and, but who knows it's Jerry, we've seen multiple times that Jerry Reinsdorf very much likes to, uh, kind of fire from the hip per se, you know, when it comes to how he hires his guys and who he promotes. Um, so it's, it's really hard to say. Um, and I'm with you, Jordan, with the point you made earlier, it's impossible not to listen to Bob Nightingale in this situation, just because it's been very obvious that he does have his ear pretty close to the organization, but um, with all of that being said, obviously with the Williams and Han situation that happened, we're going to continue to hear some leaks. I'm sure one day we're going to, you know, we're going to get an interview from one of them kind of discussing how everything went down there at the end. Um, and we're starting to see, we're starting to hear, you know, little tidbits, uh, coming out with, uh, Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn. Um, there has been discussion that Rick Hahn wanted to resign and he was kind of forced to stick around, you know, they were going to hold him to his contract regardless. You know, there was this discussion of the Jake Berger trade because Kenny Williams is the person who kind of has that direct connection with them, with the Marlins organization, which is just wild to me. And it connects the dots so well that it's just almost impossible that that's not how that played out. It's actually kind of laughable, you know, and the fact that the fact that Kenny Williams still had the authority to make trades with teams like it, it, there, the power struggle was real. And it, it was just terrible. Nick, you know, obviously we talked about like what we talked about kind of some of the early thoughts once it happened. And I think Kenny Williams made a made a te- sent a text message to Scott Merkin about it. But what are your thoughts about some of the tidbits are coming out? I mean, are you surprised? I'm, I'm sure you're not. But how do you how do you feel about how bad this power struggle sounds like it was? Yeah, not fully surprised. And I think. Specifically with the Marlins trade, we kind of knew this because Kim Ng, the Marlins GM, had said some on some interview last month that um, she had negotiated with Williams for the deal. So I guess what we didn't know is we didn't know that Williams could make these kind of deals with two teams without even talking to Han about it, which I would hope that if they had a healthy, you know, working dynamic that you at least communicate a little bit. Like it sounds, it sounds like Han was talking to the Marlins about maybe another trade or a similar trade and then Williams jumped in and was like, burger for eater done send it and honestly i don't i mean we can debate this another day i don't i still don't hate that trade i know burger has been really good so far and obviously if that continues then it probably will be a bad trade for the white Sox. but and it's not that's to be clear it's not me saying that burger sucks or anything i'm just saying i like jake eater but anyway um that one wasn't a huge surprise it's just so unhealthy <laughs> like like it, it's, it's surprising like the level of detail that we got i guess like just having that dynamic at all is so weird where like one person can make trades with most teams but not with the others like anyway and then on on the other front on han wanting to resign i mean that makes a lot of sense to me i, I wouldn't say it's a surprise again because i was kind of surprised he didn't resign when they hired la Russa. like that first press conference when han looks like he was being held hostage that kind of said it all to me at the time that he wasn't on board with the hire. And it's kind of, I got into some debates with people who were still big fans of Rick Hahn, Cause I kind of jumped off that wagon, like, I don't know, maybe around 2020. And when the white Sox were exclusively signing relievers and like Larry Garcia types and the Han defenders would say things along the lines of, Oh, well that's Tony LaRusso. That's his influence right there. It's not Han. My response was to be, yeah, you're probably right, but nobody is, holding Rick Hahn at gunpoint and forcing him to be GM of this team. If it bothers him that much, he could leave. And that ended up being kind of right because he could leave. He just would have to leave baseball because Reinsdorf wouldn't let him sign or interview with another team while he's under contract. And you'd have to go on to, you know, private equity or whatever else he wants to do. So that, 
I, I kind of understand the nuance there. And it's kind of honestly a pretty low move if it's true by Reinsdorf to say, I'm going to make these moves without giving you any input and you have to stay here. You have ML that you talk to other teams like that. While, while it's technically legal, you know, under MLB's rules and Hunt's contract and whatever, it's still just not cool for an organization that's all about loyalty and family and all that. So those are really my thoughts on it. Nothing too groundbreaking to me, but like Duke said, I think a lot of the more interesting stuff is yet to come. And I'm kind of hoping we get like a tell all, you know, podcast episode or or book or anything one day from Honor Williams just really letting loose on everything that we haven't heard yet. I I do want to preface everything that I'm going to say too with this doesn't what I'm going to say, it doesn't absolve Han of the fact that this didn't work. Like whatever we say about this, whatever leaks come out it's like it still doesn't absolve you of the fact that it didn't work. I, I think a lot of fans are starting to be on Twitter like, "Oh, now we're trying to like make him blameless. I don't think anyone's trying to do that. I think we're trying to answer the question we've been trying to answer for years now. And it's who is making the call on these things? Is this like, who are we as fans putting the blame on for all of this? And it feels like you, you never got the the true answer of what that was. And it's very clear, um, not very clear, but it's it's a little bit more clear now why that was happening. You know, I, I think back to the entirety of the rebuild. There were really two trades that really felt off. The the most recent one was the burger one, because that came out of left field. It wasn't necessarily the idea of trading burger. It was more so it came out of left field. There weren't a ton of rumors on it. It just kind of happened. The other one was way at the beginning with the Blake Rutherford trade. And people are sitting there like, this doesn't look right. Like you got like at that time, you got people felt like you got screwed in this deal, almost like. Almost. I mean, that's not to say every other deal has been good, but on the surface, and if you look at the response from most other trades from 2016 to now, most were like, yep, I can understand that. You know, this makes sense. Didn't always work, but it, it seemed to make sense. But who are the two teams that Kenny Williams was allowed to trade with? It was the Marlins and the Yankees. And it's funny to look back and it's like, yeah, all of this is all conspiracy still. But it helps to kind of add to the mix of, you know, Han, it, Han essentially st- staked his reputation as a GM on this rebuild. And if it didn't work, you would have preferred for it to be, now I don't think two trades are going to change it, but you would have preferred it to be start to finish, he made his moves, so that you can fully sit there and say, yep, I as a GM staked my reputation on this, it did not work, I completely understand being fired at this point. But now you're going to look at it like, well, what about this trade? What about that? What about these relievers I kind of had to sign because I wasn't really in charge of running it completely how I wanted to. And it's like, I'm sure he wasn't the only GM that ever was under these things. But it's more so it's like when you're staking your reputation, and this isn't anything, when you're staking your reputation on something, you want to be the one calling the shots. If you are not calling the shots and your reputation is on the line, that's a rough position to be in. And it, I, I don't, like I said, I don't think a couple different trades or maybe one less reliever signing would have gotten the White Sox 15 games over 500 at this point. But at least from a Rick Hahn perspective, at least from a fan perspective too, for Hahn, he can feel better going out. You know, I tried this. It didn't work. It is what it is. For fans, it can be like, yep, we truly got rid of, quote unquote, the problem here. Like now we bring in a new face, a new name, a new way to think. 
It's like you kind of got halfway there, but like the other half is still owning is in ownership and now also brought on another part of the problem, which is a consultant for the team now. So it's like you kind of got part of it. You didn't get the whole thing. And it's like if you're going to make huge changes like your executive VP and your GM, you'd like that to be cutting out the entirety of your problem. I feel like it just doesn't get there yet, which I, I, it goes back to things people have been saying for a while now. You got rid of part of the problem, but because of how this organization operates, you didn't get rid of all of it. Yeah, see, I agree with a lot of what you said there, Jordan. Um, my only thing when it comes to Han, though, and this is something that we, we have discussed in the past. Um, I know I think me and Nick might actually discuss this directly, but my biggest issue with Rick Hahn, um, and it's the reason why I have a hard time really absolving him of a lot, but you know, those examples you made are correct. I think those are things that he probably shouldn't have to fall on the sword for because it was obvious that Kenny Williams was still very much in charge. And, you know, I, you know, I think it said it all when the Manny Machado contract negotiation fell through that we had to look at a sad Kenny Williams on a golf cart. Like I, I, I go back to that image in my head a lot. Cause it's like, why are we talking to him? Why? Like, why was he the guy that was kind of heading this? That's very disappointing to see in a situation where you just promoted Rick Hahn to be your guy to kind of build your roster. But with that being said, the White Sox payroll on a, on a year-to-year basis the last few years has been fairly high. You know, I, I think I think people, they, they go on the idea that we're cheap, but honestly, there was, uh, there was some clearing to go spend some money. And I just, it doesn't seem like Rick with the roster construction, he decided to do it, it ended up working out very well. You know what I mean? There was uh there was some more home run signings. I think he could have tried to make. Um, I think he went with the p- approach, which isn't necessarily a bad approach. And it does work for some teams where we're going to spread this money out with some vets who have proven it, who are mate, who aren't on their first major deal um, or like their big free agent cash in. They're kind of at the point in their career where they're going to get paid well, because they're still a good contributor, but nothing crazy. He went for those guys. He went for the Yasmani Grandal. He went for the Dallas Keuchel. You know, he went even even the Andrew Benintendi signing, which I think that was more of a, a signing in, in the right direction of what we should be aiming at. But that was too little too late. That's something that we should have been trying to do with a different player earlier on in the process. And it just flat out didn't work. And it hit a point where we had spread ourselves thin with these contracts of okay players or, you know, players who are on the back end of their careers compared to the upswing of theirs. And uh, it just flat out didn't work. And I think that if I'm going to blame Rick Hahn for anything, that's where my blame is going to sit with him. It's not going to be, um, you know, trades of Jake Berger, which obviously I don't I, I love Jake Berger. I don't necessarily hate the trade. I just hate that there was a conflict of interest with the people up front about making that trade and that somebody um, who was supposed to have roster construction control was basically overthrown in that trade. You know what I mean? Like the situations like that are annoying. And I, I wonder how much that's happened in the past. And hopefully we do get kind of a tell all interview at some point with this, you know, but that's, that's what I think Rick Hahn needs to wear. And I think Rick Hahn will, he'll, 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 I think he'll land on his feet. He'll get somewhere else. I think, I don't think he'll ever get in a job of power like that again, but he'll be in a baseball front office. Cause I think there is knowledge there, but um, just the strategy he took at a very crucial time in our franchise. Um, it just didn't work out. And sometimes you got to fall on the sword for that. Right. And I think, again, that's why I preface it. I'm not absolving him and saying, like, there are two things you absolutely that justify the firing. 
Number one, the rebuild. That was 100% him. We know how Kenny Williams build teams. We know how Jerry Reinsdorf has historically operated. That, that was a Rick Hahn idea. That was a Rick Hahn idea to strip this thing down. The other big one is what got them into trouble, which was um, going and trying the, I call it the Atlanta Braves model, where you sign your young players to team, quote unquote, team friendly deals. That was a that was another Rickon decision to make. He decided, you know, hey, um, and it's partially because of ownership, but hey, given the situation, I'm going to take this model, bring these guys up, and pay them, but keep them relatively cost controlled. For some that worked, for Robert that worked. We're seeing it really didn't work for Moncada. Jimenez is like you can you can go either way with him, um, but overall that didn't work either. And you're now constrained by certain deals um, as a result. So those are the two things you have to wear as a GM that, yeah, no matter where the rug got pulled out from you throughout this, yeah, it stinks that start to finish. You weren't the only one calling the shots on something you staked your reputation on. Um, But at the same time, there is enough here that very clearly is your doing and was your idea. And a lot of us got behind, myself included. A lot of us got behind these ideas. But if they didn't work, you staked your reputation on it. It's time to move on. Hopefully you learn something, like you said, Duke. Hopefully lands on his feet with another organization. Um, but certainly, hopefully he learned something throughout the process as well. Yeah, I mean, I think kind of add on to that. We all, we all in the White Sox fan base collectively, we were very excited. I, from what I remember, when the Moncada extension was announced in early 2020, that was a big deal. He was coming off 2019. All the complaining in the offseason was oh we only have Moncada for two or three I don't remember what it was two or three more years like enjoy him while you can and then they sign him to get five years of team control and that was seen as like an incredible deal and obviously it hasn't worked out I'm not arguing for that but my point is I also agreed with the plan at the time the problem and getting back to kind of what Duke was saying is a thing that we discussed a little bit on the last episode which is the philosophy of spreading the wealth with you know a bunch of vets like that's that could work like i'm not saying you needed to sign bryce harper obviously would have really helped but if you're gonna sign an andrew benintendi you need to sign like two or three of him every offseason like these 15 million dollar per year deals should in theory be doable for multiple players every offseason and this is not even saying like i'm not talking about benintendi personally or his profile i'm talking about his contract basically like you need instead of having benintendi Grandal, Keiko, I guess Hendricks can kind of count in that sort of like mid-tier um, free agent contract. You can't just have average one per year. If you really want to compete and you want to have actual depth instead of just, you know, a few decent players and a bunch of AAA guys, you need to sign multiple of those per year. And the problem is I think Han wanted to do that. I don't know if it was ownership restrictions or just bad resource allocation in general, but that didn't happen. So it was kind of like they didn't really pick a direction because they didn't go all in on the stars, but they also didn't really go all in on the mid level either. They just did like one per year at most, and that was it. So yeah, if he gets another job as a top or one of the top decision makers, I'll be interested to see how that goes in another organization. But that's just another thing I'd like to see from a new new front office is basically just pick a direction and actually commit to it. But then bringing it full circle too, you know, like. And it goes back up to Han because he put people in positions. You're you're at a position where you know 
you didn't commit either way. You kind of did half measures. And if you're going to do those half measures, then what's the one fallback you have? You have a prospect pool from which you can choose from. The problem is they don't have that either and haven't had that throughout the entirety of the rebuild. We're not even sure some of the top talent is going to pan out perfectly. Guys like Vaughn, Moncada, um, Kopech still in that iffy zone. I think even Cease after this year, it's like you're not totally sure what you're getting from him. Um, You're at this point where, yeah, if all else fails, you were supposed to have a prospect pool. You didn't have that, and now you want to put the guy who is in charge of getting you that prospect pool into the front office as the lead guy in charge. I just don't know how you can feel good about that. If you're doing a holistic review, kind of like we are here, if you're doing a holistic review as an organization of what went wrong, how do you in good conscience say, you know, the the, the final like fail safe was supposed to be this prospect pool and we have gotten nothing from it as of now. It's looking up, but as of now, when we needed it most, we had nothing from it. And we're going to put that guy in charge. That's that is the biggest kicker for all of it. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's certainly tough how that all ended up playing out. And um, I, I think it was always a real shame that we never loaded up fully in an offseason. So by the time we hit the deadline, we almost felt like we had to go get something. You know what I mean? It, it, we always kind of felt like we had this like level of desperation by the deadline, especially 2021 when we made the Kimbrel trade like we probably should have been a little bit more prepared with the roster because we should have known we were going to make that run that year. Like after 2020, where we looked like a team that could potentially, you know, be a playoff caliber team every single year, we should have really pushed the chips in. Hendrick signing, I'll, I will actually defend the Hendrick signing to the end of the earth because he has been not, he was nothing but fantastic for us. It's an absolute shame what happened, what's happened with his health, but that's nothing he can really control. And he, that he knocked it out of the park as far as the signing goes. I, I have zero regrets about that. But even, even after that off season, you know, and I'm not necessarily somebody who like will scream and scream at the sky. If we don't sign every person that I want, it still felt like we didn't get enough heading in. And then we go to the deadline and we trade, a guy in Cody Hoyer, who sure he's been injured since, and it's, it's been been really unfortunate, but his stuff was dynamite. Like he looked like a like a legit guy. Like he could have been a either a back end guy long term, or you know there was whispers of us potentially trying to get him into a rotation spot at some point. And then you know even with a Nick Magical, say what you want, he was a highly touted guy within our prospect list and somebody who we had under team control for a good while, even if he wasn't going to be the starter every day at second base where is our biggest hole been on this roster since the Nick magical trade? It's been at second base. So we really set ourselves up to be able to have to kind of ship off decent pieces out of the farm because we, uh, we flat out, we're not, we, we did not have the roster ready to fully make a run and compete. And um, it, it's really annoying because you took all this time, you'd made all this plan about thinking long-term and having this team ready to start winning by 2020. And then by the time we get to 2020, 2021, we still don't fully have our roster ready to go. And that's, that is a failure. That is a big failure in my opinion. And, you know, like you said, Jordan, even with guys not panning out from our prospect list, it got thinner because we tried to make these spot fixes at deadlines. And we tried making these spot fixes at winter meetings instead of just going out there and getting guys and leaving our farm alone. And it's, it's hurting us now. I mean, hopefully some of the guys we got in the trades over the course of the past month, 
you know, I, I really do like some of them, especially, uh, you know, the idea of having two young catchers who could potentially be, you know, the, the pair moving forward for the next five years. I think that's a pretty good feeling, but we should have already been more well prepared for something like this. And it's, it show it shows our inability to be able to draft well as well. And that has really hurt us over the course of the past few years. We really talked about Rick Hahn there for a minute, huh? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a worthy discussion because I, it's, it's finding the fine line between you don't want to absolve him because that that is one thing a lot of fans have kind of jumped on people for is like, oh, now you're trying to absolve him of everything. You're just making out like Kenny's the bad guy and Rick's this, you know, humble guy who was just sitting there and couldn't do anything about it. No, like there, there's plenty you can point at him. Um, but it's like you do have to accept some of these rumors for what they are. I, I think given the sources they're coming from, I'd find it very hard to believe that like Kaplan and McGuffey are lying about those sorts of things. So you do have to look at the sources and say, yep, this seems legitimate enough to say, Hey, what was really going on in that front office? And as you try and break down again, like I said, as you try and break down who's at fault, where things really started to go awry, we still don't have a good answer to that because that's how this organization has been. That's how they like it. And hopefully the new single decision maker will change that. But who's to say? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of reminds me of the episode of The Office where it was where it's three guys kind of in a circle with a Mexican standoff with air pistols. You know what I mean? With you know, that that's it's like who who you know it's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. Like it, it's this constant like passing of blame and like. I think where we're honestly Sox fans, the way you're going to be able to sleep a little bit better at night is kind of trying to dive in deep, finding the blame in each situation and who to be able to blame, blame for it. Instead of just trying to find that one scapegoat because everyone was at fault here. Genuinely, you know, I can't blame Kenny Williams for things that Rick Hahn did. And I can't blame Rick Hahn for things that Kenny Williams did. And I can't blame either of them for things that Jerry Reinsdorf did because he's the guy who's in charge. So Find, finding finding nuance in this and just not blindly hating people and, and instead looking for where they were wrong. Like I don't hate Rick Hahn, but he just didn't he was very he was bad at his job. Kenny Williams, I hate that guy a little bit, mainly because of the terrible things he said about my Hall of Fame first baseman, uh Frank Thomas years ago. But I that's just one that I'll personally never let go. Jordan, you wrote a pretty good article discussing a lot of the big up and coming names in the game of baseball and the executive side of things and some names that the White Sox fans should co- probably get familiar with um, just because I think there's some names that are going to be floating around there. You know, hopefully, hopefully this isn't just Dayton Moore and Chris gets and that's it. Hopefully we at least get a, a thorough search here. At least we bring in a couple people to interview for this. Um, do you want to discuss maybe some of your favorite candidates of that, of that article? Some people that are a little bit intriguing, obviously the Tampa Bay Rays is a franchise that everyone's going to be looking at, but, uh, maybe, maybe some, uh, maybe some guys or, or gals who, uh, you think could be a uh, good fits from other organizations. Yeah. I think the biggest thing I learned from doing that article was how disappointing it would be if they had already decided on gets and more, because there's a lot of qualified people, the way you kind of look about identifying those people at least to start with is you look at guys who or gals who are under a um president of baseball ops that isn't going anywhere so atlanta la those types of teams where the friedman's one of the best guys out in la um anthopolis is the same way out in atlanta these are guys that aren't going anywhere anytime soon so start poaching from those organizations in general just look for 
people from winning organizations. That's not a tall task. There's a lot of people there. A um, couple of my personal favorites. So I'll mention one of them, Preston Mattingly, um, because he was mentioned as part of rumors. The more I dug into him, the more I actually really liked him. Um, the concern there for Mattingly is he's very similar to Getz in that he's only the director of player development. So the same concerns we have about Getz, we should also have about him. However, some of the revamping he's done of the Phillies minor league organization, which has, we all kind of knew was just abysmal and left for gotten forever. Some of the turnaround he's done there has been awesome. Uh, another name, Brandon Gomes out in LA. He's an executive VP out there. He's their current general manager. Gomes played for the Rays uh, as a reliever, and he had some good things to say during the trade deadline about their general philosophy, things like that. I think whether you're someone who's like pro-analytics, anti-analytics, you can kind of read his perspective on deadline acquisitions and really, really like it. And I think, again, just working under Friedman, working under one of baseball's best execs is going to make you more attractive for a role. I'll throw out the third name. I, I, I There was 15 names in the article, so I'm not going to go through all of them. The third name I wanted to throw in there because it's like, why not, is Jeff Lunau, um, former Astros general manager. Take out the 2017 scandal. And if you really look into Lunau's past, he has a resume that goes beyond that team. You know, everyone was so excited when James Click was in uh, Morosi's rumor because he was the GM during the most recent Astros World Series. Look at that team. Look at where those guys came from. They came from Lunau. Like, if you really want to go back and take a look at that, as Duke holds up a Joe Kelly frowning at Carlos Correa picture, you're not distracting me on this one any more than you already have. But if you really look at Lunau's past, the, the, the work he's done for the Cardinals, there is a strong resume there. Like if you're really going to look at the best of the best, that's a place to look. He might not be the right fit. He might not even want to get back into baseball, but it would be foolish to not even consider him because of what he built and that there's the Astros are still benefiting from them. I think that's worth mentioning. Honestly, it's a, like I said, it's a full list of 15 names. I tried to keep it to, like, if you only held an, an assistant GM job or a director of player development, like, you probably aren't going to be there just yet to head up baseball operations. But some of the names I at least threw in there, because they were worth mentioning. These are up-and-coming names and certainly deserve some credit for the work they're doing as well. Yeah, I mean, I just want to jump in briefly and say it's it's a very good article for a search that, is exhaustive and tries to push in the best organizations and use people with great, you know, modern philosophies on baseball and whatnot. But it doesn't have as many Kansas City Royals names as you might want if you're Jerry Reinsdorf. So that's my only <laughs> critique of it. Uh, but I mean, frankly, I haven't had a lot of time to like dig into names the way that you have, Jordan, like the way you do with the articles. So I don't really have much to add here, but I just. It's it's fun to read that, but at the same time, part of me, like in the back of my head, is thinking like, why even why even do this? It's going to be dated more. I I don't know it's going to be dated more, but you know what yeah. I mean. Why even write the article? <laughs> yeah, that, that crossed my mind multiple times. <laughs> uh, I talked with Joe Binder multiple times. Like, do I even bother doing this? I wrote it multiple times in the article. I'm like, this might not even be worth it, but I wanted to do it, so let's do it. But yeah, that's a completely fair point. Is like. This might have already been done before I could even sit down and 
come up with the article idea. So it it is frustrating in that aspect, especially if come six weeks from now when they make the decision that it is gets, um, I will have wasted a lot of time. Uh, and that is what it is, but it will still be frustrating to be like, they could have already announced gets this. This was not a worthwhile process. So your point is well taken, Nick. Yeah, no. And, and that's the one thing that's having me hold out hope that it's not going to just be gets anymore is the fact that if that were the case, they could have just, and if gets really is going to be the top dog, they could have just immediately said Chris gets is the new, even give, even give him like an interim tag if you really want to. But the fact that they left it so ambiguous and said by the end of the season is at least interesting to me. But Duke, I know you had some interesting thoughts as well. And I think some names of your own, right? Yeah, so I tried to go a little bit outside the box of what Laz uh, wrote about, which, by the way, is a great article. It's a great read. Um, I always like reading potent, like really deep dive potential articles like that. I actually wrote an article a couple of years back when we uh, we originally hired Larusa, and I really did a deep dive of a lot of the potential managers that were out there, and it made me realize how much managerial talent is really just sitting at home. You know, it, it's kind of crazy, or kind of you know in a, in a hodgepodge with their current organization. You know, I think a guy like Sandy Almar Jr. should probably get a shot here at some point with the work he's done under Terry Francona and covering for him when he's been gone, but that's a discussion for another day. Um, So I have three people lined up here, two potential president of baseball ops. And in an ideal situation, one of these, one of these presidents would end up bringing in their own GM with their organization. My first one has to be Michael Gersh from St. Louis. Um, he is a guy that uh, I'm a big fan of. I'm a big fan of the St. Louis Cardinals organization as a whole. Um, not in the sense I necessarily like the team, but in the sense that they are a very well-run organization. They have been for a very long time. You know, I think a lot of people will immediately go to the, oh, t- you want you want the Tony LaRusso stink to continue, you know? And I understand that argument. But even when Tony was in St. Louis, it was still a very well-run organization. They very consistently found, you know, um, international players they're very good at the international player pool um they've done very well in the draft they've done very well in building their uh their farm system as well as making very good trades um without completely deteriorating their farm system you know i think uh i think it knocks out of the park with the nolan arenado trade you know whether or not nolan starts falling off in his career they gave up nothing to get that trade and you know i i think uh that's those are the types of trades we need to start making as an organization you know and i think they're a very well-run organization. They've promoted from within. There's never been a full, huge turnover. And, uh, you know, he's been part of a lot of winning baseball and surrounded around a lot of winning baseball. And he's seen how winning baseball teams are built. And I really like that idea. And kind of in that same vein, um, I'm looking, if we wanted to even go a little bit on the younger side, uh, Brian O'Halloran over in uh, over in Boston. He's their, he's their GM right now. But with that role, he's actually kind of the third in command in their front office. And he could potentially not be in line to eventually get that president of baseball ops uh, job. So he's a guy, obviously, you know, you look at what the Red Sox have done over the course of the last 20 years, you know, he's been there for 22. That's he's been very much a part of that. He's worked with Theo Epstein. He's worked with, you know, Dombrowski, you know, he's worked with all these guys and uh, you know, say, say what you want about a guy like Dombrowski who, you know, maybe had a bit of a mixed, mixed time in Boston and he still helped them. He still helped win the roster to help them win a world series so 
he's been around a lot of winning baseball. And I think that's a name that uh, I really think people should get familiar with. And I think that's somebody who the Sox, if he's willing to interview for something like that, need to be very serious about trying to get in the door. And if Brian O'Halloran were to get hired as the president of baseball ops, I think he can bring a general manager with him who is very, who's been absolutely fantastic in that Red Sox organization as well. And that's Raquel Ferreira. She, uh, she's the executive vice president, assistant general manager already as it stands. So she's already somebody that works directly with him. Um, she has been with the organization just about as long as he has. Um, she actually started, um, a big, uh, big rookie, big rookie, um, type of like uh development system in 2004 really when they started winning world series and kind of kept that ball rolling as they lost some of their aging superstars and they just continued to fill their roster with young good talent you know i think you look at some of the people who have come out of the red sox or organization in the last 10 years even you know there have been just some absolute superstars and some of the guys that some of the people they've brought in from overseas as well um, that bodes really well in the kind of the plan the White Sox usually have with the type of culture that they've built with some of the guys we've brought in. So I think those are three that are kind of on my mind. Obviously, I'm just sitting here hoping to God the Sox did something like that, which means they're definitely not going to. Um, they they probably aren't even going to interview these people because that's just so White Sox. But um, yeah, those are those are three candidates, I think, in an ideal world that you could really, really get behind as like, man, are we back? You know, you said something in there that I really liked um, about, you know, working with the Cardinals um, and some of the work they've done on the farm system and, you know, really placing an emphasis on some of the farm system. And you know who did that really well for a long time was Jeff Lunau. So thanks for helping me there, Duke, as you rolled your eyes at Lunau way back so, when. <laughs> so I didn't want to bring this up, but now you're bringing it to. There happened to be a little bit of a controversial situation between the Cardinals and the Astros and we're going on two controversies here honestly jerry reinsdorf might pick up the phone if he listens to this episode because of the controversy he's like oh this guy sounds like a gamer yeah here's my thing and it's gonna, it's gonna sound weird here's my thing though it's like you haven't won enough to be like oh we need to find this perfect like he might be a little bit off of a character at times luno and we, he might be. Get somebody who knows how to build a good program, though. Like, yeah, maybe he does some shady stuff, but you can't. You you don't build a player development system by shady stuff. You you can't do that. That's all I'm saying. I'm not gonna go to bat for Luna. I'm just saying it's at least worth discussing. I think you might be in the box. I'm in the box. <laughs> I don't have a bat in my hand, but I'm in the box. If that's the analogy we're going with. I, I agree with you that it's hard for me to be picky genuinely with, with something like that. But that's like, exactly that's kind of what I'm saying. The way it came out didn't sound great. That's exactly what I'm saying. I, I, can we afford to be that picky? It's kind of more so. Uh, honestly, dude, like I said, I think you just sold him, Jerry Reinsdorf. I think both of us did with us saying that he's, uh, <laughs> he, he's a little shady. You know what I mean? He does uh, he does some like back alley bullshit sometimes. You know, I think that's right up Jerry Reinsdorf's fucking deal. So. I I don't know. I just I think if you if you bring somebody in, it has to be somebody that's been around winning baseball consistently. And I I don't know if you necessarily want to bring somebody in who's been that high in an or, in an organization yet. You know, I don't know if we want a former G or a former president of baseball ops in that same spot. I don't know if we want a a former GM to be hired as our GM. You know what I mean? I think I think being close 
close to it is nice, but I think giving people this uh, this opportunity to come into the organization and you know not don't get a second chance, get your first chance. Go out there and show baseball who you are. You know, I want a GM in there who is aiming to be a president of baseball ops with another team in the next few years because they do such a good job here revitalizing the team. You know, I don't want somebody who's like just trying and holding on to dear life for their second GM spot. I guess that's where my biggest disconnect would be with that. But as you said, it's hard for me to be picky. Yeah, I I go back and forth on that. Like, I like the idea of somebody like fresh, true promotion coming in. I worry about giving the keys to someone who hasn't done it before because this, this, this at this point right now, the White Sox are at a very critical juncture. I don't I didn't have that issue with Grafal because I'm like, all right, this ideally this this roster should be dummy proof. Like you should be able to come in, have a good start, and if you make some rookie type mistakes as a manager, you know, the talent should eventually win out. The problem was the talent never won out. I don't think Grafal is the reason he's a problem. I I don't think he's the reason this team didn't succeed. My concern would be more so if you bring in a first time guy to run baseball ops, you don't have the luxury at where this team is at right now to make mistakes. If you make a couple costly mistakes, even one costly mistake, you trade the wrong prospect or something, you bring someone up too quickly. You're in a very, very bad spot as an organization already. It's only going to get worse. I would like to see, ideally, the president of baseball ops be someone who's close, like who's been a GM before and has been like an executive VP under a really good president of baseball ops. I think that person's probably ready to go. Then you bring in the new hotshot young person, up and coming GM, because on a good team, like I think I mentioned this before, like nobody knows the Cubs GM. Like, but they know Jed Hoyer because Jed Hoyer is the one who answers for everything at the end of the day. Um, and that's how it is with most really good teams. Like I told everyone, Brandon Gomes is the Dodgers GM. I bet not a lot of people knew that. Like, you know, Andrew Friedman though. Like I would be, so my long, sorry, my long point here is that I would be fine bringing in someone kind of who's maybe getting ready to earn that promotion as the GM to kind of learn under a true been there, done that type person before. That would kind of be how I'd like to see it play out. I get the merits of both, though. But that's where I've kind of been going back for, like, who do I really want here? And I think because of where the White Sox are at, you almost need someone a lot more experienced or had at least some experience fixing something that's not in a great place right now. We're going we're gonna to get, we're gonna get Jim Tomey and Chris Getz, and we're going to like it. Um, like I, 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 well, you got the new person. I hate, I hate sitting in here, sitting here, and like being excited, thinking about this because, like, the plan you just had—that's a plan I really like. There's so many different plans you could do it. You know, even if you wanted to go the experience route with both hires, like there, there's still a, an argument you can make for that that would still be good. And like, I, I have my preference. You have your preference, Nick. I'm sure you have your preference, but man. I'm just so terrified Jerry Reinsdorf is just going to make the dumbest hire in the history of mankind. And just, we're going to be right back at square one. Yeah. Don't, don't mistake anything I've said as like excitement for it. Like I don't have much faith in what's going on. I at least want my ideas out there so I can be like, here's what I think for the few of you who might care what I think. Don't, don't mistake it as excitement for the new hotshot guy we're going to get to bring in under this long-term veteran of decision-making from a great team. 
um, I am in my head at the Dayton Moore Chris Getz combination and trying to somehow make that work. Um, I have not strayed from that since the first rumor came out. As much as I wrote an article and don't want to believe it, I have not strayed from that. Well, I, and I think that's where all three of us are wired a little bit different. Whereas whoever we hire, we are going to find some sort of way in our heads to be able to justify things that they do to try to yep. almost not even <laughs> like justify it, like to the sense where like we defend it, but to the point where it's like, what, what was the thought process here? Why did they do this? This can't be completely like without merit. There has to be some sort of idea in, in mind here. I, I do it across all my favorite teams and it just, it's aged me horribly. I, I will say one other thing on this that I'm curious about to see once this eventually happens, if it is someone other than Moore and Getz, you know, you don't know what the state of this team is in a couple of years. Like yep. with all the rumors floating around, Reinsdorf might actually sell as appealing as it might be. According to rumors, like it seems like a fairly appealing job, a lot of potential. Is it like a two or three year shelf life until a new until a new owner comes in and that's kind of it. So that, that that's one thing I'm curious about. Like what's the shelf life? Would you not get some long-term person? Would it have to be someone who's willing to be new and have a risk? Cause this might be the only time they ever get it. I'm curious to see what that angle provides for potential candidates. Yeah, I agree. That's something we talked about very briefly on the last, uh, the mini episode, just because mm-hmm. with everything on the table right now, it's like, okay, maybe you don't hire Dayton more, but you do, promote Chris gets well the new owner comes in in two years does that just make it easier for that person to fire someone like Chris gets rather than someone who's been around longer more respected or if my original little conspiracy theory was maybe if sale is coming uh, uh, sooner than we think and maybe you're seeing rise of work in conjunction with whoever this mystery buyer is to install whoever they also like. But then once the name started coming out, I kind of jumped off that theory. So um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But yeah, I think that's a very good point just because they're, everything's on the table from selling the team to moving the team in addition to, you know, hiring a new front office. So I think if the hire is not more or gets who it is in particular, will say a lot about what might happen there. Yeah. I think, and, and just, just to kind of close out this point and uh, make, make the run here, my ideal my ideal situation, if I'm Jerry Reinsdorf, which means he's going to do the exact opposite, hire a committee to help you hire your president of baseball ops, bring him in, let him do the rest. Let him decide who stays. Let him decide who goes. Let him decide where Chris Getz fits into the organization. Maybe a base, maybe a president of baseball ops comes in and, and talks to Chris Getz for a week, you know, and he's like, you know what? This guy might be ready. Who knows? Let let that guy do that, though, Jerry. Do not get your fingers too involved in this. You are a huge baseball fan. I will give you credit to that. You are not knowledgeable enough in baseball to make these types of decisions. Like, bring in a committee. You have more, more money than anyone will ever see in their life. Pay guys a couple grand to sit in a room for a week and be like, hey, this is the best option. Go hire this guy. Listen to them. But anyway... That's all we have this week for the Sox on 35th podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website, SoxOn35th.com. We were talking about Jordan Lazowski's uh, article a little bit ago. Obviously, Nick always has something pretty good in the pipeline. Hopefully, eventually, I'll write an article again, but we'll see. Um, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at SoxOn35th to stay up to date with your Chicago White Sox. This has been Duke Coughlin. Joined, as always, by Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. 
I will not be on vacation next week, so we will be back for another episode of covering White Sox baseball. Thank you, and go Sox! Jerry, my resume is ready if you need it. Go Sox! I'm just ready for Dayton Moore and Chris Getz. Go Sox! <laughs>